0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Volrath Feed. I'm your host, Rich Rupp, product trainer and chef here at the Volrath Company, and I'm joined, as always, today by our executive producer and co-host, Justin Pearson. Welcome, Justin. How are you today?
1: Yo, Rich, what is up? I'm doing quite well today. What about yourself?
0: (laughs) Uh, We're both pretty good lying, right? We're both feeling it. (laughs) This is a week, (laughs) isn't it?
1: Oh, man. It's it's always those... Pre-holiday weeks that that they get you, or whenever you you're about to go on a vacation, you try and cram everything in, and (laughs) yeah, you 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 just you do everything you can so that you're caught up, because it's that inevitable mountain of of things you have to sip
0: through when you get back. So Uh, that's it. Well, that's where we are, right?
1: Yeah, you know, it's we're cranking it out though you know i'm I mean, happy to be
0: here <laughs> oh that's a fact you know these days are fun they really are like getting to talk to people and hearing some of the great stories we've heard it's a good day it really fun. is fun you fun
1: know, i i look forward every time we have to record because it's it's a nice break from our regular duties yes. it just allows you to just kind of take a breath of fresh air and really reflect upon other things that that aren't your normal day
0: stressors all right, like our chefs and excuse me, all of our guests, you know, they, they start talking about things and it's like, wow, that's really cool. Or that's interesting. Or wow, that's impressive that, you know, people did this or we always hear something good. So it's always like a, just a good day.
1: Yeah. Well, and it, it it helps put my challenges into perspective when I hear Mm -hmm. about what other people have gone through and helping me remind that, you know, I could always have things a little bit more difficult. And a lot of the, the people that we've had on the show, um, They are doing amazing things and have far greater challenges than I'm faced with. So it's it's a positive thing.
0: You know, Justin, as much as we love hearing from our guests that we have live, we also love hearing the things that our listeners have to say. So I just at this point want to make a reminder to everyone, if you have any thoughts, suggestions, a comment, a question, or anything at all relating to the feed, let us know what you think at volrathfoodservice.com slash the feed. All right, so Justin, it is another good day. We have a chef that's going to be on the show with us today. And we always talk about the journeys that the chefs have, right? Where they, How they got into food or what was their journey to where they are.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And so often we hear about that, oh, I got a job at a place, as entry level or whatever they were doing, and then they worked their way up. Well, today's guest is no exception, Chef Justin Carlisle, who is the chef and owner of uh, we opened in 2013 a restaurant called Ardent. It's also Red Light Ramen and The Laughing Taco here locally in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So we have him on the show with us. And really an accomplished chef. Uh, Midwest uh, nominee for the Beard Award 2015, 16, 17, 18, 19. And um, you know, he's got a good restaurant and a, good, a lot of cool things going on. So it would be interesting to talk to him on the show.
1: Yeah, I never get tired of hearing chef's origin stories. A lot of them do follow a similar path as far as how they got into it, but, man, the possibilities and where they've been and what they've done, it varies greatly from there. And it's always entertaining to hear how they got into it or how they came back to it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's always fun to hear those stories because the, they, they generally have a lot of color to them.
0: <laughs> right. A lot of people that are in the industry – and, and this is consistent, is that there's people that just like the lifestyle, the camaraderie of it, right? So you mm-hmm. go to work, it's a second shift job. Typically, you're getting done at 10, 11, 12 o'clock at night. That means a lot of these young people are going out, having fun, and it's that lifestyle of, of that and the camaraderie of everyone in the business. And you go to the, a lot of bars on Monday nights, have hospitality night where they have specials for people that are in the industry. And that really draws a lot of people in kind of keeps you around for a while and then you feel like okay now where am I going to go with this and either make the decision to continue on or jump out and jump back in or however however it happens but I wonder you know in today's climate with labor right now there's so many people that during the pandemic when restaurants shut down they went and found jobs in other industries or other Mm -hmm. you know types of business so I wonder if we're going to see an, a disruption to kind of that progression. Like, yeah, I started in the restaurant industry and the pandemic hit and now I work at Lowe's or something, right? Where are we going to have that same kind of progression? It's hard right now with, with staffing restaurants. It's just to try to get people in um, is, is very tough right now.
1: Yeah, and I, I think it'll probably be that, wa- that way for a little while. But like we said before, there's something that just pulls people back to food service. Mm-hmm. I, I think you'll start noticing that, that people who left the field will be drawn back into it one way or another. It might take three months. It might take a year, but it, they'll start coming back. I
0: don't know. For me, the thing I miss the most, I think, is the the service on the line, working the mm-hmm. line. You know, I'll admit the the prep days and the, the weekends and holidays, you're working, you're never going to get many people to say they love that. But mm-hmm. when the dinner bell rings, so to speak, and you open for service, and we always called it, I think I mentioned it on the show before, second gear, right, where it gets busy mm-hmm. enough where you're like, okay, now we got to go. Let's go. And that, that adrenaline starts pumping and you're starting to work in the kitchen with everybody and it's like that that magical synchrony you're all in where everything's just really going working together. That's when it's fun. That's when it's a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, I've I've never really experienced that on my own, but it, it's a similar feeling in, in- in other areas where you don't need to communicate with words you're just at, you know what everyone else is doing and uh, it's been related to uh, a dance and mm-hmm. everyone knows their place and they they know their timing and it, it just it's a good
0: feeling when when everything's just clicking on all cylinders mm-hmm. yeah you're right very much like a dance like if there's one person that's out of step the whole thing is gonna just you know not work as well so very good analogy just like a dance and you know, Chef uh, Justin here—he is a, um, a local, born and raised kind of guy. He loves um, talking about coming back. He left our area for a while, and he's back in Wisconsin now. So back in Milwaukee. So that's a good story mm-hmm. as well. I hope we'll touch on that somewhat with him. Mm-hmm. Well, that's and- a
1: common story for a lot of
0: Wisconsinites. You know, they they end
1: up traveling out, seeing what the world has to offer, and getting some experience in some different areas that they would never have the opportunity in Wisconsin. But then there's, there's something magical about Wisconsin that brings people back. Yeah. And I'm in in that category. You're in that category.
0: No, right. No, we we both lived it. You know what people hate about Wisconsin? It's the winters. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's it. The 20 below zero for three weeks straight and the no sunshine. Mm -hmm. That's the part that drives people out of Wisconsin.
1: That's true. It's true. But it, it, it's something that, you learn about trade-offs and you realize that, hey, you know, Wisconsin has a lot of great things, a lot of positive things. And then you start to think like, well, I guess I could deal with the winters for a little while longer, mm-hmm. at least at least until I hit retirement age.
0: There you go. That's it. I, I've yet to
1: find a perfect place. Cause That's right. I, I don't know. Me personally, I don't know if I could handle like perfect weather all the time. Hmm. I remember I was in San Diego, for a conference years ago and i I ended up talking to uh, a guy from chicago he lived in san diego for 10 years and he liked it but he said i I can't do without the four seasons so he's moving back to chicago and so it's there's something to be said like if you're you're born without four seasons it's it's a good chance that you'll you'll probably come back to that at some point
0: yeah i got to get my wife to listen to one of those people because she's convinced that uh That perfect weather would be exactly where she'd want to be (laughs) all the time. But I don't know. You know, we talked about uh, a little bit about the pandemic and and the restaurant industry and so forth. And Justin's going to have a nice story, I think, about his restaurant. And he was lucky in the regards that right before the pandemic hit, he remodeled his restaurant and really did it in a way that it would benefit him during the pandemic. Um, mm. So that'll be a good story there. We we um, was fortunate enough to do that. Uh, that just kind of seems like a, a construction
1: trend that was accelerated by the pandemic. You know, moving more towards these things of takeout delivery for restaurants that maybe ten years ago wouldn't even be on their radar. Mm-hmm. But wh- where there's money to to be made, you know, it it, it makes sense to be accommodating. To that that
0: shift in in the customer landscape mm-hmm. all right well it sounds like we got a couple of good topics here it's I think it's time we bring in our guest once again everyone to remind you our guest today is chef Justin Carlisle, who's the chef and owner of ardent red light ramen and the laughing taco in Milwaukee Wisconsin Justin welcome to the Volrath feed
2: thank you so much for having me today
0: well, our pleasure thank you We appreciate uh you're taking the time uh, spending with us today and uh, you know with, with chefs when we bring chefs on one of the first things we always love to hear about is the journey that people take to get where they are right a lot of us have gotten in the industry at a very young age and started in, in, in one way or another into the industry or can you tell us a little bit about your story and just kind of lay some background as to where you kind of came from and how you got into the industry
2: Sure. Um, uh, like you said, you know, I started at a young age, um, 14 dishwasher. Uh, yep. we came from a small town in Wisconsin closer to La Crosse called Sparta is where I'm born and raised from
1: Sparta. Yeah.
2: <laughs> my family still lives there. Family farm is still there. My folks are still on the family farm. Um, I kind of got led into the profession also because I was the youngest at three and my middle brother, um, followed into the profession at a young age. and He's two years older than me, so it was a quick channel to, to follow after him and get easy jobs, I guess you could say.
0: People always ask, that, do you have a brother or someone you know for to fill in on a position, right? That's how it kind of works in the kitchen. Yeah,
2: you know, when parents tell you how to get a job, you kind of lean over and be like, hey, where are you working? Think you can yep. get me at the other you get me in? Um, <laughs> That's it. Did that through high school I uh, stayed in the kitchen up until right out of high school. I went into the military for uh, Army and then Army National Guard. Uh, wow. Did my time in that. When I came back out, I followed, again, my brother back into the kitchen. I worked at um, a well-known supper club in the Dells called Ishnala Supper Club. It was my first job out of high school. Um, and then I, shortly after that, started traveling. So I moved down with my brother to Bluctie, Mississippi. Worked in the casinos where he still is uh, a chef there in Black Mississippi with the MGM Grand and Bull Ravage. Um I stayed a year and a half there. Uh, and then kind of continued and did like most of us do at a young age and look for top restaurants, hotels, those types of items that you want to kind of make a resume builder. Um, I did lots of stages that time in New Orleans. And then I landed a job in West Virginia at a resort called the Greenbrier. Um, which I spent about two years there, and during that time period, um, I would also take the off-season and work uh, in the city in New York um, at a restaurant called Gramercy Tavern on the off-seasons of my time at uh, the Greenbrier. After my two and a half years between those individual places, I decided to move back to the Midwest, and I landed a job in 2001, Um, at a restaurant called True uh, in Chicago, which was done by uh, Rick Romano and Gail Gann at that time period, which Mm -hmm. was quite a well-known restaurant for that era. Um, I stayed almost five years into 2005. Um, During that time, I would travel back and forth. I got my culinary degree during that time while I was full-time there. Um, In Madison, Wisconsin, at Madison College or MATC, Um, is where I finished my degree at that point. Um, 2005 I left to move back to Wisconsin um, where I spent the next five years in Madison uh, first as the chef of harvest restaurant up on the square Um, and I was there for about two and a half years close to three years and then I went and uh, helped Shinji Morimoto open up a bunch of his restaurants, the Morimoto restaurants, uh, Hayes, and then uh, 42 or 43 North was one I also opened up. After that time period, I moved back to Chicago, helped a close friend open up some restaurants. His name is Chris Pandel. He had the uh, Bristol and then. Um, Bellina, and now he's part of the Boker Group, but I helped him open those restaurants before moving to Milwaukee uh, August of 2010, which I was headhunted by a group here called the Surge Group, um, which had a decent amount of restaurants at that time, most well known as Carnivore. Uh, I worked for Umami Moto, well, that time period was here for about a year and a half. Um, I left after a year and a half, so beginning of 2013, uh, to open up Ardent, which would be my first restaurant that I opened up. Uh, we opened it October of 13, uh, and we're still going today. Uh, Red, Light Ramen, <laughs> yeah. Red Light Ramen opened up. Uh, we would do that as late-night pop-ups at the restaurant Ardent on the weekends, Friday and Saturday nights. We did that for two and a half years. We opened up Red Light uh, summer of 2015. Am I right? I believe so, August 15, um, no, 16, I apologize. And then after that, we opened up the Laughing Taco, which my wife is from Monterrey, Mexico. So it is traditional-based tacos of Monterrey, her region, um, which is going to be over on Washington and first, kind of by Alan Bradley. Uh, we opened that June of seventeen. Um, we've been fortunate enough so far that all three are still operating in some sort of capacity as as we've gone through. We've done a lot of life changes as everybody else over the last year, but uh, that's kind of the sweet and short story of where we are today.
0: <laughs> you know,
1: Rich, um, I don't know if you can tell if uh, Justin has a military background, because that was the most precise timeline that we've ever had from a guest before. <laughs> That was, on the clock, that was detailed on the clock, and, you know? and specific <laughs> to the point i love it i love it
0: <laughs> yeah very good so when you were when you were younger justin and i were talking about this on the front side of the show you know we get into this industry as young people and and you moved to i think he's in new orleans you worked in a casino was it the lifestyle that you you liked about it then was that a, a draw to you or was that just where you were following your brother
2: oh 100 i Played. Very, I worked very hard and I played very hard.
0: Yeah, right.
2: <laughs> I think probably earlier in my life, I probably spent more hours of the day playing hard than I did working hard, or or we just took out the sleep area for the most part. Yeah. yeah. No, one hundred percent. It was the lifestyle. It was a very fun time period of life. Um, I think it kind of waged both both sides of my life. Uh, young, growing up on a farm and moving into the military, moving forward, was there was that structure. There was that extreme kind of workload that I was used to and kind of needed in life. But there was also uh, that time period of letting the workload go and um, enjoying my life as much as possible in that time period, too. Um, and I wouldn't say that maybe I was too much of a social bug or am a social bug. Uh, But I enjoyed that uh, extracurricular part of our life period of the camaraderie and hanging out and discussing, and I think that I probably learned just as much, uh, whether people enjoy to hear it or not, of those time periods of late-night drinkings with coworkers and friends about (laughs) our industry as I did working in the industry. Um, And I I probably landed more jobs by doing that also, but we don't need to discuss that
0: aspect, it's it's a unique thing it it really is the restaurant industry on you know uh get you get done with work it's like i said a second shift job and you're out late at night and that's just where the lifestyle kind of takes you and you're right you meet so many people and you have that that camaraderie and that bond with these people and it's it really is kind of a family atmosphere isn't it it is you know i mean i
2: think and it is wonderful, you know, later I'm in my early 40s now and life has changed in our industry and I think that it, it's wonderful that it is changing. But, you know, the, the lifestyle that we grew up in was, you know, by the time we're off of work, there is nobody else out. It's not like we get that done at five o'clock and we have a whole world to associate with. You know, it's kind of the you know, only people yeah. that get off between 11 and 1 a.m. are the same people that you probably worked with. So um, <laughs> now you can just sit down and yeah. talk, you know, and you don't have weekends off. You don't have holidays off. You Depending on whatever shifts that you're working at, you know you're you're working ten to fourteen hours a day. You might see sunlight half of the day, or you might not see sunlight at all, depending on what time you go to work, what time you get done. Um, and that was, you know, oddly enough, the it was the lifestyle we all know it. You know, and, uh, we never really fought against it for the most part. And I, you know, I praise our industry, and I hope to be part of it and change and those types of things of how we move forward and creating that. Demanding the respect for our industry and our employees and wages and those types of things, but it was what it was at that time period. You know, I'm not gonna mm-hmm. take it back or regret it or anything else. You know, I wouldn't be where I am or who I am if it wasn't for those time periods and years.
1: Yeah, no doubt. Uh, there's a couple of things I want to go back and, and unpack a little bit. Um, so, it, it was a beet farm you grew up on?
2: Yep, uh, yeah, uh, my family farm. So, my family. Grandparents got to farm in the 30s, mid-30s. It was agriculture, moved into more agriculture and dairy farm. Uh, my father went into animal science and meat science in the late 60s when he was in high school and into college. And then he got the wonderful draft letter to the Vietnam and did his time and came back. Um, started having a family and he traveled around in did uh, kettle ranches for, you know, the luxury rich people of the late 60s and 70s. That that was a thing. Um, but then, you know, my middle brother was born. He moved back to the farmstead of Sparta late 70s and converted from a dairy farm to a beef farm. Um, I was born in 79. That puts my date on me. So uh, they're still there. They're... Raising animals more of a hobby now. We used to run a farm supply business. They've retired out of that. Um, now mm-hmm. we are fortunate enough that we've converted that he doesn't have to go to market, and I'm his sole buyer of beef animals. Um, so we sold buy through him only. He only sells to me outside of who who we sell. We sell to some nice names in Chicago and some around here as public and quality meat butcher shop and those type of items. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, he's still doing it and. It was, it was a wonderful small town to grow up in, you
1: know? Yeah. Did you learn to break down an animal at a very young age or did it come later on? Or- a very young
2: age. You know, I mean, for us, it, it was that time period of rural, you know, rural living or Wisconsin is that you went deer hunting because you needed meat, you know, not, not because it was this joyous sport. Uh, for me, I hated deer <laughs> hunting. I was like, you want me to sit out and freeze my ass off to wait for an animal to... <laughs> Walk by like, no, this isn't, you know, it wasn't wasn't my cup of tea, but it was a family thing. Um, you know, we yeah. I mean, would trade beef for pigs down the road and chickens and other farmers. You know, it was all about trade and not really buying growing up. So there's one there's one thing that I'm still good at in life is definitely butchering animals. Um, and learned it very young. And learned it off of necessities, you know. I think that those that grew up in the world that we were kind of talking about, you know, it was a hard life to grow up in. You um, it was very demanding. Even as a child, you know, it was kind of get thrown to the wolves per se and say, "Hey, you know, you need to learn how to do this. Start now and don't fuck it up." You know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of the other things was um, a, a lot of our listeners are, are are not blessed with the knowledge or experience of supper clubs. Now, now, Rich's mom owns a supper club in Sheboygan, a very fine establishment. Can you explain in your own words? What a supper club is, and what and how that differs from, um, say, like a typical restaurant in Chicago or Milwaukee.
2: Sure, supper clubs are God's gift to the earth. Um, you know. Yes.
0: <laughs> thank you. There, <laughs> thank you. There, there is
2: there is nothing like it, and I know that it is not a smart business model or not. But if you really think about it, it's fucking genius. Like you <laughs> you funnel. You know, your people, and so I, I, I'll go back. I'll get to that. I don't want to get ahead of it. I want to explain at least the best that I can. Supper clubs that I know of, and by all means, Rich, correct me if I'm wrong, but me growing up in rural Wisconsin was, you would have supper clubs maybe in the middle of nowhere. You know, where I grew up right? in Sparta, our main supper club was close to Black River Falls, like 30 minutes away, out in the middle of nowhere, like unincorporated towns everywhere. Um and Mm -hmm. everybody would drive to it. You know what I mean? It was a congregating place of where people went and got their news and talked about, you know, the farmers talked about their crops and everything that were going out and how hunting season was going about and how this year was for everybody else. And it was that congregating thing. Um where kind of before everybody had televisions and everything else, is that's where you kind of got your news at. Um and that was where people met and socialized and you know, I had, as my parents would tell me, you know, their dances and all these types of receptions mm-hmm. and all these types of weddings and all these, these were happening at several clubs. It was a social gathering for extremely rural areas of the state. Once it's wonderful for the city and for the areas and everything else, you know, but for me growing up, and obviously I've, I've become more of a business man maybe than a chef. Who had cotton, but you start to think about it. So you're bringing everybody in the area directly in and they have to sit at the bar like they can't just go in and sit at the table you can't come in and say yeah i have a reservation for four um is my table ready yes give me two minutes and i'll walk you to your table then you sit at the bar whether you drink or not you still have to order beverages like you're getting everybody for one to three drinks before they even see their Mm -hmm. food menu um you know and they come up and you take your order at the bar you have to close out at the bar and then we're going to walk you to the table roll out whatever depending on the style or not the main two styles that i know of growing up is either they have the salad buffet or they roll out the salad cart out to you you know depending on mm-hmm. and you, you, you pick what dressing you want um otherwise everybody gets the same thing um and, you know through the order it comes on a timely fashion you're already closed out bartender already got tipped out they already got your money at the bar for the one to three drinks you ordered your bottle <laughs> of wine or drinks at the table go around through the whole cycle, it's an evening. You're going to start out in, you know, Wisconsin, yes. Midwest, you eat early. They're going to be there at 5 o'clock, 5.30, 6 o'clock, but they're not going to leave until 9 or 10 by the time we're done with it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so those, there is no other thing than, than a supper club that you can't call the supper club unless you do that, you know. It's, it's kind of when people will discuss, especially in Milwaukee, it's like we have supper clubs. I'm like, we might have one, maybe two. Um, you know, for me, I always go to five o'clock or they used to be old Corpors. Um, and that's about the only one that's still set up in that structure that I've been to. Otherwise it's the reservation and everything else. Do you want to sit at the bar? Do you want to see your table? You know, I don't think anybody has set buffets in here anymore. Um, but it is an iconic thing. You know, it's also one of those things that you grow up with a brandy old fashioned. You leave the state everybody mm. looks at you like you're stupid when you do that it's like i want old-fashioned they're like what do you want brandy <laughs> sweet or sour and they look at you like no there's only one way to do old-fashioned like i don't know what you guys are talking about so these are, all li- <laughs> these are all like lives of of the supper club life growing
0: up you nailed it yeah you nailed it in the brandy old-fashioned that is that was classic around here for many years standard still is it still is you yeah. know? It's but it's still it's yeah.
2: the only state that you can you have a five-step order on a drink. You know, it's like <laughs> everywhere else, it's like, oh, you want old-fashioned? Great. And that's it. mm mm-hmm.
1: No. And yeah, I, I like how s- some of the best supper clubs are the ones that haven't updated any decor like in the past like 40 or 50 years. No, it's just like. No, not at all. You're talking
0: right about now. my mom's place now, Justin. Okay. <laughs>
2: Keep it the way it is, you know?
0: Yeah. Oh, see, yeah. Everyone tells me that with her. I, I always tell her, Mom, we need to, we should upgrade or we should do something different. And all the customers and everyone says, No, leave it no. right like it is. Yeah, no. So it's part no. of the
2: experience. You don't know. You leave it, leave it the way. I mean, sure. Clean it. You know what I mean? Maybe polish the wood every then. Of now course. And yeah. Yep. Uh, but outside of that, no. No. <laughs> and if it still smells like <laughs> cigarettes, outstanding. Yeah. Uh.
0: <laughs> And you'll be happy to know, Justin, she still has a salad bar. Oh, it's I'm still doing the salad bar. It's
2: wonderful. We have one just down where I where I started dishwashing at. It's called Club Oasis in Sparta, Wisconsin. And they same thing. Actually, a kid in my class family ran it. Now he's taking it over. Um, so it, it's very funny when every time we go home because now he runs the supper club. But they still have the buffet too. So I always ask my parents. I was like, they still got the buffet? She's like, yeah. I was like, oh. Thank God,
0: Should never go again. <laughs> well, we just talked talked about a couple of real Wisconsin uh, experiences. Are growing up on a farm and uh, Wisconsin supper clubs and the old fashioned. So we've we've kind of covered a lot of the Wisconsin themes and b- born and raised. It, it, once you're, I think you could say this. If I suppose anywhere you live, but I, I hear so often, like a lot of us that grew up in Wisconsin, we'll move away and we come back and just all for those things that we love and and. Uh, that's that's what keeps you coming back to your home, right? No, yeah, yeah, for sure.
2: You know, I mean, I had looked at it. You know, younger, growing up, and starting to achieve things in life, and get to points to where I wanted to move to, become you know a different, the next step or level in my career, and where I was going to go, and what I was going to do. But well, I always wanted to come back to Wisconsin. I love Wisconsin. I love growing up here. Um, and even when I went out into the world and traveled more, you know, worked at the larger cities and worked in a lot of the restaurants, you know, of course, in those time periods we're getting, you know, uh, fish coming in from Spain and squabs and everything coming in from France and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, well, fuck, we have this shit in Wisconsin all the time. Like, I don't know what you guys are getting stuff shipped (laughs) in for, you know? Um, but it was always (laughs) a dream to move back here because... You know, outside of our, you know, outside of agriculture, it's such a beautiful place to grow up. Um, obviously, the demeanor of the people is outstanding. They're very much given Midwesterns. But even, you know, agriculture-wise is that the state is rated in the top 1 to 10 of just about every avenue of agriculture that there is in our entire country, whether it's imported or exported. You know, we we rate higher than the dairy, however we want to battle on dairy and meats and these types of areas of California, those types of places. Why don't we have the best restaurants? You know, what 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 was the harm of why didn't we move forward in the in the restaurant world and why did we shove steak and potatoes down everybody's throat that lived here and think, tell them that that was your your goal the goal and like cream of the crop restaurant that you should go eat at. You know what I mean? Like they're so much more that the state has to offer. So, hence one of the reasons why I moved back that I was hoping that we could at least help move the state forward and get a little more notoriety on being, you know, we have the largest organic vegetable area in the entire United States of um, organic value where they are and in the Cooley region where I grew up and Biberoco and all these types of areas, like we are heads above in the agriculture world than the rest of the country why aren't we heads above the restaurant world? Um, which mm-hmm. has always been my my thought and whether we can get to that point. I think we have escalated restaurant-wise um, You know, in the pushing of 20 years that I've been back in the Midwest and the pushing eight years that I've been at Arden in Milwaukee. But I think that we need to keep pushing that more and get a little bit diverse um, and kind of show how wonderful our state is instead of kind of... Riding the coattails and nothing against some clubs, obvious, clubs, obviously, because I fucking love them. But, um, you know, (laughs) but they have their moment and they have their time period and they have their place. We can have places for lots of other restaurants that specialize in lots of other things all across the state to give the state more diversity um, instead of not. You know, and I wish and I hope that we can move forward more towards that.
1: Yeah, well, and you're seeing a lot of advancements with what people can grow here. You know, as far as a, a adapting and adjusting for cold weather climates. I mean, just look what's happened with grapes. You know, and 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 hops. You know, they're they're starting to do some amazing things with a little bit of applied knowledge and science to them. And I, I think you're seeing a lot of diversification in what can be locally sourced here, and we're finding a lot of success. So yeah, definitely. And it and then it takes uh operators like yourself to interpret these ingredients into you know amazing dishes
2: no i agree and i think you know and there is the whole agriculture world of our state is is doing a lot better and i think that it's transforming and i couldn't be wrong or not but it's definitely transforming from we just need to grow soybeans and corn and all these types of items to export out and that's how we're making my money by all means i live that my father was lived that he, now he's 77 years old, you know, and it was corn and alfalfa and soybeans and wheat and everything, whatever we can mulch and that's what we feed our cattle, and thankfully we did that and everything else we need to sell, sell, export it, you know. Um, And being a produce farmer is extremely hard. It's just as hard as being a dairy farmer or anything else. But I think that there has been a lot of work, you know, through the UW systems and a lot of the people have done over the years of, of getting longer seasons out of the vegetable producers that we have, Um, whether it's the hoop houses and anything, and they're doing it very much um, thoughtful and right and correct on the way to do that and they're getting out there. And I think a lot of people are supporting them. I just want us to help them be a little more diverse that they can grow and be a lot more identified by where they are and what they can grow instead of a lot of things that we kind of see at the farmer's market where People are diverse and have different items, but then all of a sudden they still have to make a dollar. So if everybody buys scallions and everybody buys eggplant, well, pretty soon they're not going to grow diverse items because they still need to make a dollar. So they're going to sell eggplants and scallions because (laughs) that's what people buy. So it's more, you know, trying to get out the word even to the general public that loves the farmer's market is that don't buy the same shit. Like (laughs) – (laughs) <laughs> you know, be more diverse in what you buy there and ask the farmer for more things. And, you know, if they have small quantities of things that they're testing, buy it, you know, and tell them what you feel about it. These types of items and help them be more diverse and help them be able to sustain them, their, you know, products and their livelihood. You know, it's, it's extremely hard.
0: Yeah. I think that's where restaurants can help play a big part in that, though, because a lot of people, you know, if, they, if they're presented something new on a menu, they might give it a try. Because they trust the menu, the restaurant, whereas doing it on your own, in your home, may be a little intimidating for a lot of people. So that's really where restaurants can use a lot of that. And I didn't realize when you mentioned before that uh, you th- Wisconsin is number one in the nation for organic. Did I hear yeah, you say they, that right? But
2: yeah. They have, we have the largest organic producing area, um, which is going to be the cooler region, Viroqua, right where our organic valley is. So that area Yeah, the whole driftless area um is the largest compound area of organic farmers. Um which we always joked about because they originally a lot of the people came from California back in the late sixties, seventies, and I can probably they're they're hippies, it was communes or not, you know, and they moved (laughs) to this area uh because they're very destined and they could settle here easily without having to deal with um the world of mendocino county that was moving moving into their directions in the <laughs> 70s and planting other organic items you know that we haven't really legalized yet but it was all the transformation the but uh, uh there's you know the wisconsin has had wonderful things and i think that we can get back to it i think that One of the things, especially, you know, we're producing a lot of wonderful things and getting back to a good area, but I think what we're still lacking is, and at least this bothered me for my whole time period here, is the fishing. We don't have a fishery in the state of Wisconsin. Like none. There's farm-raised. I can't legally go out to Lake Michigan and catch a fish and sell out of my restaurant. That is not a legal thing for me to do.
1: I guess I never even thought about that.
2: No, I have to buy from somebody's license by the state or the USDA to serve in the restaurant. So I have to resort to buy fish from a licensed uh, sailor out of Chicago or somewhere else that it still might be out of Lake Michigan or Lake Superior or whatever else. But I have to go through another state, through another place to be able to get fish wild fish at least not farm fish from here
1: seems like something you'd want to keep in state you know that's the potential for a lot of money going out of state well
2: and i think and i you know and i don't know the whole stories and would like to find out more about reasons why like you know looking back in the history there was ones in uh you know schwigan there was ones in milwaukee there was ones in port washington a lot along the coast but they just slowly started going out you know and it's i don't know yeah, I think that is definitely one avenue that I wish that we could push forward a little bit more and figure out.
0: That is a good point. I, I Like you, I you just don't think about it until you actually want to go try to do that in your restaurant, serve something locally raised, and, and promote that on your menu, whereas you just don't have a way to get it unless you go outside.
2: It is, and and growing up, and Rich, you always know this, I asked my father when he took me to supper club, I was like, where do we catch cod? <laughs> <laughs> if like, we don't catch cod in pollock nope, in nope. Wisconsin, why are we selling nope. it as a fish fry? Like why? <laughs> he's like, don't ask him. I was like, I won't talk about
0: it. <laughs> on that note, though, in Sheboygan on Fridays, perch is the big fish. Yes, and that was a result of locally caught, you know, a, a local fish. Very, very. I would
2: um, say in every small city around here that I go to, and fortunate enough, later in my life that I try to go all Fridays again um yeah i go for perch i will always find i will always order bluegill if it's on uh, menus and if not walleye but yeah perch or bluegill is my my go-to
0: lake perch lake perch not ocean now right now there's a huge huge shortage of lake perch it's extremely expensive and it was a pretty inexpensive fish for many years Agreed. um so with that background of all these, uh, it, it's clear that you, you appreciate the um, organic and natural and all that. Is that. Where did you get that influence in your cooking style? Where did that come from? Did that just something you've kind of grown up with from being on the farm, or where did that hit you?
2: I was fortunate enough to – that's how I grew up. You know, it was, we had our own gardens for the house. We put away things in the wintertime to live off of during the wintertime and put things in the freezer and canned things on – Our dirt root root cellar, and yes, we had still one of those in our own farmhouse that we grew up in. Um, So it was kind of, you know, that mindset of being around it. And then finding how fortunate I was when I went out in the world to cook, when we would order these specialty products from these small farms across the country or somewhere else that are extremely beautiful for sure, but, you know, we would source one product from California when I was living out in New York. Um, You know, or certain products from other states when I was in West Virginia. To remember, we had all of these when I was growing up as a child. And this was easily there, and we can grow it. Um, And even getting to the standpoints of, uh, you know, when I worked for, you know, Shinji and learning about the Japanese culture and that, and then finding out that Wisconsin is 75% of the same longitude and area that Japan is. So why can't we grow the same products that we are in Japan, that's northern Japan, why can't we grow them in Wisconsin? Um, and we found out that we can, you know, there's similar weather and similar soils and these types of items. So I think that it was, we're back to more that mindset of growing up in the agricultural world and trying to push other people along to test it out, see if that we can do it, you know? And I think there was also that Product of growing up on a farm and now that I have restaurants, man, I'd be an asshole if I didn't sell my dad's beef and probably have my mom grow me something, <laughs> something like that, you know?
0: Like, yeah, that uh, might be that a bit of is, an issue for yeah, you. you
2: know, it was kind of like, oh, this chef came from a farm, but he's not using any of his farmers' products. <laughs> <laughs> but
0: but it, it does take a little more effort, a lot, little more work to source locally because you're not just calling one purveyor – I mean, am I right, or what do you, what do you say to someone who says it's going to be more work? Well, you no, know,
2: yeah, we have you know our base purveyors and local purveyors that are around on you know necessity things that we need that we can't get all the time year round or not. But you know, at any given point, we'll have anywhere from three to fifteen to you know, one year with thirty-seven different people we're trying to get off of you know in the seasons year round, and it is it is um, challenging. It's not the easiest thing to do for everybody it's not always the easiest or best business model either you know um but you have to try you have to try to do the best that you can with what you got and everybody around you and if you know the main goal is we can split the pieces of the pie and little fragments between everybody and more people then it's a lot better than being a greedy person that wants the large piece of the pie and orders it all from one place and says, screw off to everybody else. You know, I'd like to yeah. give, give a lot more and hopefully we can all survive.
1: What are some ingredients that are locally sourced here that, that's might be surprising to some people? Maybe some stuff that you use.
2: Oh, I mean, I don't, you know, you can use cattails. You can use Japanese knotweed, um, which most of the time you see on all the fence lines, it looks like huge overgrown rhubarb, uh, that most people just plow oh. over. um, <laughs> i think japanese you know, what was it called again japanese, japanese not no. and it's not weed hmm. so don't worry about it uh but <laughs> uh you know and i think that it's trying to use the plant at all sorts of the seasons you know we can use when it's in the seeding spot we can use the seeds that they're young and we can pickle them and make capers out of them or dry them and use them for seasonings later we can use the flowers when they're flowering, and budding We can use them when they actually come to fruition. We can use them stock wise um, to dry and season things. Like there's every part of where they are in life, they can be used at some point for, you know, flavoring or cooking or edible wise. And by doing that, you're also kind of giving them a more space and healthy time because you're pruning them at different times throughout, throughout their life. So they kind of get a lot fuller and grow and healthier as they kind of go. Um, I don't, you know, there's there's lots of weird things I guess that, you know, we can use. I think the more weird that we use it, we just don't try to waste anything, you know. It's kind of trying and using and everything that is out there and everything that is grown that, that we try to adapt to and give a flavor, flavor profile to. At and especially Red Light 2, we've kind of not tried to look at the source of what things are. So it's like for me, I had a real problem growing up in the culinary world where, okay, I need to make a carrot dish. Well, all I'm fixated on is fucking carrots. So I can't think of like what is going to go with or how am I going to season it or not because it's like, all right, it's just a carrot. <laughs> um, so I, we started trying to complex and take that mindset away from the cooks and myself and look at flavor profiles. So carrots obviously taste different at different times of the year. They can be a little starchier, bitterier. They can be sweet. They can be very watery and not quite as sweet at times. Um, you can bury them in dirt after you pick them and they're gonna make them sweeter, these types of things. Um, so we just started looking at what type of season it is and how that profile is, and now we look at everything as a flavor profile. Is it sweet, is it acidic, is it bitter, is it floral? Um, and that's how we've kind of composed ourselves in our dishes on it uh, to be able to go through the year instead of kind of isolating to, okay, it's asparagus season this is asparagus. Well, you can do how many things with asparagus and t- t- taste differently? So, um, we've kind of just transformed a lot of things in those directions, which kind of give us easier ways of adapting, especially at Arden with a multi-course tasting menu. Um, you're not going to get bored sitting here for three hours eating 17 items and want to blow your skull off. You know what I mean? You kind of enjoy <laughs> it. and have a good time. Um, and yeah. then You can convert most Midwesterns that we try to convert that get the first two little bites of things and ask if that's it and I'm not going to get full and, you know, what kind of fortune size <laughs> yeah. it is. Just give me a big piece of fucking meat and all these types of items that we usually get every day still. But, uh, you know, and halfway through they're full and they don't want to keep on going because it's too much food and they feel uncomfortable and call them pussies and we yeah. keep on going. <laughs> um, there's lots of dynamics that we look at for, you know.
0: When you talk about the flavor profile, and the ways that you can alter that. Do you also look at cooking techniques and ways you can alter the flavor profile? For example, one of the things I, I love to make in sous vide is carrots. When you mentioned carrots, the first thing I thought of, because it, it really keeps that flavor more pure. So do you use different cooking techniques like that as well for, for the flavor flavor profiles? And do you like sous vide?
2: Yeah, 100%. I'll um, You know, I, I'll get back to the, the carrot in a bag situation. We... I mean, at Ardent, actually at all of the restaurants, so we don't have gas at any restaurant. Um, Arden just got a hood this year, so we didn't have a hood for the last seven years. Red Light Ramen still doesn't have a hood. Um, and the taco shop has a self-filtering electric hood. Uh, we have all induction, all electric, um, circulators, everything else at all the restaurants. So we've definitely used... Just about anything in any way manageable other than traditional um, cooking at all of our restaurants. Lots of sous vide, lots of circular, lots of vacuum sealing, um, lots of low temp cooking. Um, You know, we've gotten lucky enough to have electric combi ovens that are uh, self-filtered too from uh, Alto Shaman uh, rationales that... Give us the capabilities to doing large batch cooking or preserving and steaming and roasting at different kind of heats and proofing and baking at all these kind of different quantities, Um, but extremely lots of that on preserving and different you know altering the flavor profile for sure. Um, You know it's kind of the first about when to go back to the carrots. It's the of kind of what we're discussing before is if you're gonna cook carrots in the sous vide in the carrot bag, what do you cook them? Do you just sous vide them normal? you put a little bit of water in there do you put herbs in there or do you take all of your peelings and you juice them and you put carrot juice in with carrots to make carrots mm. taste better like carrots so <laughs> yeah. um, you know it's it's going back to the utilization of it. it's wonderful to preserve everything right. in it but now how can we use every dynamic of that product that we're using to enhance how wonderful that a carrot can be or anything else.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it's funny how much effort you can put into carrots. If you really want to make the best carrot, right? All the work they can go in, and it.
2: I mean, but by doing that and now preserving it with the carrot juice, and you can pull it back out in December. Now you're having carrots in December that taste like carrots, you know, instead yeah. of buying at the store and they taste like water, you know.
0: Yeah, you'll know, you're, you'll probably have an opinion on this as well. My dad was a a uh, growing up and worked in a butcher shop and. The meats aren't the same anymore either. And being a guy who buys fam- meat, beef from your family farm, you probably notice a big difference in some of the meat that's out there that we've changed in the way that we've commercially grown beef and, and other proteins. They just don't taste the same. We never used to think there could be a 12-ounce chicken breast, and now it's almost, you know, everywhere you look, there's such a huge chicken breast. Yeah, you, not- st- you staple them to the floor and can't move.
2: They're going to get big, you know. Like, and <laughs> <it's kinda> like- <laughs> Things have happened. Um, no, I, I agree. You know, growing up, and there, there's a lot of discussions and a lot of personal preferences. You know, I think first before maybe if I go into mine, that everybody should just find a butcher and everybody should find a place that they trust to buy their proteins and their even their vegetables or not. Whether it's a Sendex or whatever, I don't, you know, that is, that is a good butcher shop. They should find that, and they should supported and continue going to and talk to the butchers and talk to the people that work there and get to know them as human beings but get to, because they know what they're getting in. They know what's coming in. They know how things have been happening. Um, you know, there's I don't as you can tell I'm pretty open in person. So there's been our time period of, you know, grass fed and these types of things over the over over time. And you know, my family growing up, it's not grass fed. We finish on corn. We finish it a very traditional way, we always have. Um, but animals are just like humans, you know, by all means. As my wife needs to say, I need to watch what I eat. You know, if we feed the animals garbage, then of course, they're not going to be OK. Um, I guess the whole world is easier to explain on, especially protein-wise or beef-wise. Um, one example, if you think about grass vector, because those animals aren't truly healthy. Um, so, if you think about grass fed, you ever done a juice diet um, or like a juice, yeah. juice cleanse?
1: It was short lived, no. but yeah, no, I, yeah I I, I've been there.
2: <laughs> now, imagine living your life on that. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's pretty much grass fed. You know what I mean? Yes, there is, you know, I, and I can, and people will argue or not. Yes, there is proteins, there is sugars and carbohydrates and everything a well, lot that they do, but they're not at a normal or adequate level of what the animal needs to survive and have a balanced diet. Um, And nor is the large feedlots that are finishing, uh, you know, six months on corn. If you feed me candy bars for six months, guess what? I'm going to be fat as shit too. You know what I mean? like, (laughs) my meat's not going to be good and I'm going to have three inches of fat around my back and around my midsection. But on the other side, when our wonderful country and government only gives our farmers anywhere from 47 cents to $1.10 a pound an animal, well, what's the easiest way that they can make money? I'm not going to yeah. spend any more on the feed that I'm growing and laboring and everything else because I'm going to lose money. I'm just going to feed them the cheapest thing that we make ethanol out of called corn to put fat on them, to put weight on them so I can get paid. you know. And unfortunately, it's more on the settings of our whole circle is not a full circle anymore and broken than it is on how these animals are really, really raised. Everybody knows how to raise them. They just can't afford to raise them right because they aren't paid well enough to raise them right. And there isn't enough out there to be able to pay the farmers to do the job they know how to do. Um, so they have to take shortcuts. You know, I'm fortunate enough that... My father and I we have an agreement and it's we're equal and I, he solely sells to me so he does you know he those cows are have a better life than I ever had on that farm my entire life um, you know, completely have back scratchers and all these types of things out in the yard and more shelter than I had and heaters and I don't, right. and they have a balanced diet you know we start them out on the right vitamins A and D and all these types of things before we can, right when they get weaned off into their grain diet. And as a grain diet goes, you know they. Before we go to corn, they have alfalfa and silage and all these types of items. where We watch their carbohydrates and sugar levels, and you know wow. walk through. And then when we start getting towards the end of it, then we adjust those carbohydrates and sugar levels with molasses or cottonseed or or other items. And by the time that we have them on corn in the last three months of their lives, their body is already adjusted to any kind of levels of sugar or not. So it. It's just a natural transition. They're perfectly fine. They're not collecting any more fat. And they're not gaining more fat. It's just a natural process because we've actually cared about their diet and what they've eaten. Um, unfortunately, not a lot of people are allowed to do that by just the way that our system is.
0: Do you have people that come into your restaurant and comment on the beef that you have, and they notice a difference?
2: We do. So We're fortunate. It's, it's a wonderful story that makes me and the— The family here, my team here, you know, it's it's a wonderful thing to see my parents show up every other week to drop off animals and all these types of things, and I still talk on the phone to the butcher that saw me born when I grew up that slaughtered all of our (laughs) deer and everything else for the last 45 years, and his kids went to school with me, and their kids are going to school with my brother's kids, and, you know, it's a wonderful thing that we can somewhat be on the forefront restaurant-wise, if you would say, within our state, or Kind of mindset of where we are in a larger city, but keep those roots that we we had in our small town, and be able to kind of keep these people survived and going. That you know might be have a harder time, and at least trying to do our part, as small as it might be, to, to keep those things going, and hopefully not break the circles as much as they've been broken.
0: So when you opened your restaurant, and I, I didn't realize you, you had you didn't have a hood. I knew you were a big fan of induction. But I did not know that you didn't have a hood or anything in your restaurant like that. So what what did you have? did you buy did you occupy a space that wasn't previously a restaurant? or what would you say to someone that's you know if they want to think about getting into it and they and they don't have a hood, they don't have a, a real kitchen established in the building they're looking at or the place they're looking at? What are some things you'd suggest to them that you maybe did to get get started?
2: I mean first, I would tell them not to do it. Don't get into the business. <laughs> Don't do it. Don't do it.
0: Yeah. Right.
2: Um, I mean, to me, again, it goes maybe you know redundant of what I'm saying the whole time was when I opened up Ardent. It was kind of that you know tipping point in my life where I was mid 30s. You know, either I'm going to do this or I'm not going to do this, or I'm going to work for somebody the rest of my life, or I'm going to take the leap of faith and and figure it out. Um, I did not have any financial backers. I did not have any bank loans. I did not really go through the conventional route. I had money saved up, and uh, my parents loaned me the rest of the money. So it goes back to the words that we've kind of said before. It was off of necessity. Um, It was, by all means, not a space that anybody would think that we would have a top 200 North American restaurant in that's been on about every list that there is in the United States. Uh, You know, we're in a lower-level garden apartment basement uh, just off of Brady Street in Milwaukee. Um, <laughs> you know, we didn't get a sign until two and a half years ago. So, <laughs> uh, you know, wow. so we looked at it, and the hood was, so we're five-story apartment building. So a five-foot hood to go up because you have to go straight up, in Milwaukee you can't go out the side, uh, without going into the wall was going to be priced at a ballpark of 150000 um Whew. Ardent from start to finish cost me sixty-five thousand without a hood. Um mm-hmm. so we did induction, we did uh self filtering uh ovens. Uh we got very smart in the what we looked for. The first induction burner that I got, I got out of Quiznos. Um, and what it what Quiznos calls is, they still called a soup warmer, so it's still mm-hmm. rated the same as what your little box uh, water-filled uh, soup warmers are that you set on the counter. So it's rated the same, sure. so I didn't need to have a hood for it. So that's what we wow. used, uh, you know. And then we just kind of worked with the health department on everything that we needed and made sure that. You know, we did HACCP plans for cryovac machines. We're one of the first ones in the city um, to help them establish that, you know, on what time periods, on two days, five days, seven days, shelf lives with vacuum sealing and what machines are and packagings and repackaging and freezing. Um, There was a lot of that. It was was a lot of paperwork. Um, So those were types of thoughts, but I would, you know, and I always tell people, When they discuss about opening a restaurant, you know, and by all means, my thoughts are different or not, but, you know, 85 to 92% of all restaurants fail within the three years that they open. They never see their five-year mark. And that is most of the time because chefs are not great with money at all most (laughs) of the time. Like, we like nice things. We want to buy them. They want a lot lot of expensive things. um, (laughs) So don't do it. Don't buy them. it start out be minimalist, be real about it, be you know quite straightforward on what your overheads are and what your costs is and what your numbers are, and do your business plans and do your P and Ls and financials extremely scary, like do numbers of day that are terrifyingly low, like holy shit, we're doing ten people a day, but can it work? You know, and can these numbers work? And being smart, can you? You know, a lot of us at Arden, you know, we always—they always laugh at us—that we're we're plug-and-play kitchen. We can literally take our kitchen and go anywhere and do an event and set it up exactly the same way as we have it at the restaurant. All we need is to make sure that we have enough power. Um, you know, and and that's been fortunate to us. And I also think it's made us better. Um as a restaurant and as a cooks here that because we have to think about it. You know, if our pastry chef or one of us is in the oven, you know, we started with a toast oven. So if somebody she was making bread for that night's service oven, why well, don't have an <laughs> oven for two hours? So you know you have wow. to you have to be organized and timeline wow. and communicated and you know be connected with each other here to do that to be able to run that system. And I think that made us a lot better. Um, cooks and organizations and be able to move forward in this industry a lot better no matter any environment that we were in because we didn't have a lot of the things that a lot of people need when they get to a place to do certain things. We've researched, tested and done other things um, that is maybe not the norm to accomplish this final product that we got but we might have to go a long way about it but you know, we, we came to the goal that we wanted to without having to have the streamline and you know if something happens we don't have six burners that we turn on full blast and drop pans on it and we can just at least have hot pans and figure it out if we need to well, we don't have that luxury you know if you fuck up you fucked up like you, you just can't you can't bounce <laughs> back too quick so um i think that that was a lot better for us and i honestly wouldn't i wouldn't change it for the world yes i miss gas a mm. lot yes I miss grills, but you know what? I, I have a grill outside in the alleyway that we use, so it, it works out all right, you know? Mm. <laughs>
0: wow. That's, that's a great story. A toaster oven to start. My dad started out the same as you, mid-30s, and uh, if he couldn't afford it, he didn't buy it. And 41 years later, my mom's still running that restaurant. So, you know, that business philosophy of of keep it simple.
2: No, it has to be, you know, because there's, there's no guarantees at all.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, you're right. Justin, uh, before we let you go, and, and thanks again for today. We really appreciate it. I, I know throughout your career or, we, you know, all of us, we have these, these moments, these people that influence us or things that we have read or quotes that we know of uh, that inspire us or that drive us. Do you have anything like that today you'd like to share with our guests or, our, excuse me, our audience and uh, something that affected you or that you live by?
2: Um, yeah, I think, you know, unfortunately, the, the restaurant isn't open anymore, and that was their choice, but there was a restaurant in Denmark called Relay, um, and Christian was the chef's name, and he's pretty well known now, but I think he was, and it was right before I was opening up Ardent, um, listening to him do kind of a, a seminar and discussion about his thoughts of, of his restaurant that he was just opening, and... Thoughts on life, and I think he helped me at least confirm the path that I wanted to go down, on and the thought of how I was going to treat my restaurant and the people into it the best that I can. Where, you know, he he discussed on how the importance of our rest, restaurant, our industry was, um, but how the importance that we need to make sure that people understand. Um, you know, people that will come in want to sit at the bar and get a reservation. People that come in an hour late, people that don't show up for reservations, um, those types of items, and that how it was capable that people could do that, but say you have a doctor's appointment, and by all means, if you don't show up for your doctor's appointment, it doesn't go over so well, and you're going to get, you know, you have to pay for it or not. So we should be treated on the same level. Um, And also, maybe the thought process of maybe not trying to be a huge profit. Find out what your business needs to pay its bills, find out what it needs to stay open, and find out how it can treat uh, the family that runs it the best it can, and only run it for those many hours. If you can do that four days a week, then only run your business four days a week and give everybody else their three days off. Don't be greedy. Mm -hmm. Don't fight for a profit. Fight to keep it open. Fight to sustain it, but only do enough to keep it open, to keep people employed, to give them a better life don't do it for greediness
0: I like that yeah we've heard that uh, you know, in other ways that people it, it's it's not about the money
2: I don't want to say I mean yeah it was the old structure the old model doesn't work the 30 30 and 30 and hopefully hopefully take back 10 it doesn't it doesn't work throw it out the window there's many models that you can do and every model is different it all depends on how you build your four walls and what your overhead is and what your model is um, every model can be different. But just make sure, as we talked earlier when we talked about relationships or not, find the model that can work, but find a model that doesn't have to be open seven days a week, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You know, if one model of one restaurant is always open for breakfast and there's another one that's always open for lunch and another one that's always open for dinner, then now we have three businesses in our community to support that will make our business better and give more people places to be employed and more people to go to support the community. If we have one place that's open for all three, then he's going to close out two other places. Um, mm-hmm. So spread the wealth a little bit and be a little mindful about what what is sustainable.
0: Yeah. Good way to look at it. Absolutely. Well, Justin, again, thank you for today. Thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, a lot of fun. I know our listeners uh, appreciate hearing your insights and advice. you got you know really good way of looking at some things. And uh, thanks for sharing your story with us. We really appreciate it.
2: No problem, guys. Thank yeah. you guys so and, much. Is
1: it? Yeah. And one last thing, Justin, it's what's the best way for people to connect with you and your uh, various restaurants online?
2: Uh, I mean, social media wise, uh, we send over. You can connect with me on Instagram at uh, Ardent Justin or for the restaurant wise is Ardent MKE. Otherwise, we have Red Light Ramen and the Laughing Taco. Um, Otherwise, on Facebook, it's going to be Justin Carlisle. Um, And then the same restaurant names, Ardent MKE, uh, Red Light Ramen, and The Laughing Taco. Um, Most of the time, especially with Ardent, uh, follow social media wise. We do a lot of our changes up there because we don't really advertise what the menu is as it changes so much. So we only have a sample menu. Um, And most of the time, we don't get the menu until you leave. So even when you sit down, you don't know what you're going to eat either. It kind of helps that. <laughs> awesome. It kind of helps that perspective we talked about earlier, Rich. That way, they they don't have to pick mm-hmm. and choose. They don't even know what they're going to get.
0: Perfect. All right. Well, awesome. once again, thank you. I uh, wish you the best of luck uh, and take care. Thanks hey, for joining Thanks, us, Sam. Take care. I'll talk to you soon. Appreciate it. Well, there we have it. Another great episode, and I'm, uh, I'm sure Justin. I think uh, we've come to anticipate the next segment of our show, where Indeed we get we our, have. you know, our. Our friend Nate, who is with us in every step of the way here in the podcast, and now we have Nate's notes. So, Nate, take it away. Give us our final thoughts on the, today's episode.
3: Well, thanks, Rich, and thanks, Justin. I always appreciate being able to chime in with my two cents here at the end of the show. Um, the first thing I just i I know it's not necessarily notes, but I need to hop in on the supper club conversation because <laughs> I was so jealous that I didn't get to be part of that conversation as oh, it was man. happening.
1: We we need a whole episode just on supper clubs. I we
3: mean, do. So we, we could, do, we do, we to su- fill one up easily. We need a supper club episode because just as Justin was describing it, it's like it transported me to so many places I've been here in Wisconsin, to, and it makes me grateful for the true supper club experiences I've had. I wish I could I could help our our listeners understand how on the nose he was. That is exactly. <laughs> what a supper club experience is like, and I mean, I've been to many, that is exactly what it's like to a T. That is the experience. And like, I can pick the lighting in these places is almost exactly <laughs> the same. And and the old fashions taste a certain way and the crowd oh, yeah. has a certain like an ambient noise to it while you're waiting and people just chatting and having a good time and being relaxed. And it's, it's dinner as an experience at a supper club. And I know Justin mentioned it and appreciates it, but it's just... It's what people love to say about up north here in Wisconsin that like life just moves at a different pace. Mm-hmm. At a supper club, that's exactly the kind of dining experience you're getting. It just, everything moves slower, but everyone's okay with it because you are there for that whole experience from start to finish.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. agreed 100%. And it's, we're seeing a little bit of that, you know, people ex- look reaching out for that experience again, so all good stuff.
3: Definitely, and I think right, to tie a bow on everything, that is such a Wisconsin experience to have. And it's so clear in, in, in a lot of what Justin talked about, how proud he is of where he's from, how he's taken a lot of lessons um, from his upbringing, from his time be- living in Wisconsin, from his time being in the food service scene. He's very proud of where he's from. And it's a cliche phrase, but there's so much truth to it that good cooking comes from the heart. It comes from the soul. And a lot of what Justin thinks about, and he's very detail-oriented, a lot of what he thinks about is ingrained in in the experiences he's had in the places he's from and he really tries to accentuate those, those positives and use it to source ingredients in such a way, to, pr- to provide food that is true to who he is as a person, but it's also elevated cuisine that is something that is not common to find in the place that all of us call home. And it's just such a unique combination of things to me. And that's what I really appreciate about him is how much passion is put into his food, but how much of that passion is derived from his experiences growing up in Wisconsin. But then he uses it and shapes it in such a way that he he's delivering the kind of thing that is not necessarily commonplace in our state and it's just a beautiful melding of those things oh Well Well well
0: put all right well nate thanks again for that uh you know you just got that ability to kind of bring it all together and put the bow on for us so thank you for your recap and all right justin any final thoughts Yeah, I would like to remind everyone to please, please hit that subscribe button so you never miss another moment with a chef or food service industry professional again. Right, and as always, as I say in the beginning of the show, let us know what you think. Reach out to us at volrathfoodservice.com slash the feed. And in my close, I'd like to just once again say, if you do everything as if a customer was watching you, you'd know you'd be doing it right. Thanks, Dad. Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a great week ahead. Till next time, take care.